and welcome back to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. As always, thank you very much for listening. In the inaugural episode of our series on the Korean War, we covered the broad strokes of the history of Korea prior to its occupation by the Soviet Union and the United States of America following the conclusion of World War II. To briefly recap, for much of its pre-modern history, Korea had been an independent country, albeit under Chinese suzerainty. In the late 19th century, Japan began to exert more and more influence over the country, culminating in the formal annexation of Korea by Japan in 1910. The period of Japanese domination over Korea was highly significant in the development of the Korean nation, and it is within this period that the genesis of the future conflict in Korea can be identified. Within the Korean independence movement, two distinct tendencies emerged which differed in their ideological principles, their relationships with outside powers, and the methods they used to advance their aims. One group was known broadly as the Radicals, and they would form the basis of the leadership of future North Korea. Ideologically speaking, the Radicals were on the extreme left of the political spectrum. They were influenced strongly by communism in either its Soviet or Chinese variants, and some of them forged close ties with communist leaders in either country. They were also more vehemently anti-Japanese than their counterparts, and advocated violent struggle against the Japanese occupiers as the only way by which Korean independence might be achieved. The fight against the Japanese was waged primarily not in Korea itself, but rather in Manchuria, also known as northeastern China. Thousands of Koreans had relocated to this region in the face of increasing Japanese repression, and when Japan invaded Manchuria itself in 1931, Koreans formed the nucleus of armed resistance against the Japanese occupation. One important leader of these guerrilla fighters was Kim Il-sung, who would go on to be selected by the Soviet occupation forces to serve as the leader of a nominally independent, communist Korean state. On the opposite end of the political spectrum were the conservatives. Their ideology was a synthesis of Western liberalism and Confucian-influenced conservatism. Rather than advocating armed struggle against the Japanese, the conservatives tried instead to lobby foreign governments, principally those of China and the United States, to support Korean independence. Going forward, we covered in greater detail the division and occupation of Korea by the United States and Soviet Union following the collapse of the Japanese Empire. Right up until the end of the Second World War, the Allied powers, foremost among them being the US and USSR, regarded Korea as an afterthought. After all, the primary objective of the Allies in the East was the defeat of Japan and the dismantling of its Pan-Asian Empire. By the time of the Potsdam Conference in July of 1945, Japan's defeat was imminent. The Soviets were preparing to attack Japan's imperial holdings on the Asian mainland, while the Americans were poised to launch an invasion of the Japanese home islands. Even at this late juncture, the fate of Korea was still up in the air. Previously, American President Franklin Roosevelt had privately proposed to Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin the idea of a joint Allied trusteeship over Korea following the war's conclusion. Stalin expressed an interest in this idea, but no formal arrangement along these lines had ever been made. In early August, the Americans, in the hopes of expediting Japan's surrender, dropped two atomic bombs on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Quickly before moving on, I'd like to mention one thing that I neglected to discuss in the first episode. When the Americans were trying to decide which cities to target with their new atomic weapons, they selected Hiroshima and Nagasaki due to their significance as major industrial cities. 
Many of the laborers in the shipyards and factories of Japan during the war were, in fact, Koreans. Beginning in 1937, approximately 750,000 Koreans had been relocated to Japan and forced to work in more related industries. At the time of the bombings, there were over 50,000 Koreans living in Hiroshima, and as many as 30,000 in Nagasaki. Now, estimating the death toll of the atomic bombings is rather problematic. But between those who were killed instantly and those who died in the days and weeks that followed, it is estimated that about 40,000 Koreans were killed as a result of the bombing. At the risk of getting too far off topic, the Korean survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were for decades denied the free healthcare services that were provided by the Japanese government to other non-Korean survivors. On August 8th, two days after the first bomb was dropped, the Soviets launched a full-scale invasion of Manchuria. The rapid advance of the Red Army was concerning to American decision-makers, who feared that the Soviets would be able to occupy the entire Korean peninsula before the Americans were able to land troops of their own there. In the hopes of forestalling such an outcome, on August 10th, two American army officers, Dean Rusk and Charles Bonesteel, proposed that Korea should be divided between American and Soviet zones of occupation, with the line between the two being drawn at the 38th parallel. Despite American fears to the contrary, the Soviets agreed to this proposal. The American occupation of southern Korea did not get off to a very promising start. From the beginning, the Americans recognized that with the limited number of troops that they were able to have present in Korea, that it would be nearly impossible to maintain public order on their own. In order to do this, they required assistance from the Japanese colonial authorities. While the Japanese were readily willing to collaborate with the Americans for the most part, this decision proved massively unpopular with the Korean population themselves. On September 10th, thousands took to the streets of Seoul to protest this decision, prompting the commander of the occupation forces, General John Hodge, to clarify that the former colonial officials would only be retained in a strictly advisory capacity. Still, this did not fully resolve the tensions between the Korean people and the American forces that occupied the country. The fact of the matter was that, in general, the Americans did not believe that the Korean people were capable of self-governance at this juncture. In order to ensure that the Korean government would remain amenable to American interests in the future, the Americans sought to support conservative Korean groups in their bid for power. The most prominent of these groups was the Korean Democratic Party, led by Syngman Rhee. Rhee was old, 70 to be precise, and he had spent much of his life in the United States, acting as a lobbyist for the cause of Korean independence. Rhee was relatively well-known and respected among the populace on account of his perceived wisdom, Rhee had a PhD from Princeton University, as well as his tireless lobbying efforts against Japanese domination. His reputation among his colleagues was less than pristine, however, a reputation that had at one point led him to be impeached as president of the Korean provisional government based in Shanghai due to allegations of corruption. Still, his lobbying efforts did eventually pay off, as the Americans had come to regard Rhee as their man in Korea. In general, the Koreans wished for their country to be reunited and independent. They also desired badly needed social policies such as land reform and more equitable food distribution. These desires manifested themselves in the Korean People's Republic, a political party turned provisional government. The Korean People's Republic, or the KPR, was a big tent organization, drawing in more left-wing political parties as well as more moderate nationalist ones. 
What was most concerning to the American authorities was the fact that the KPR essentially functioned as a government unto itself. Through the numerous people's committees that sprung up across the country in the wake of the collapse of Japanese authority, the KPR took on many of the duties of government at a local level, such as facilitating the release of political prisoners imprisoned by the colonial regime, the distribution of food, and most importantly, the maintenance of public order. The American occupation authorities, however, could not tolerate the existence of this alternate government within their midst, and so they began to crack down on the KPR, officially banning the organization on December 12, 1945, an action that only served to further exacerbate tensions between the Americans and the Koreans. Meanwhile, in the North, the Soviets had to deal with many of the same problems as the Americans did, but at the same time, they also possessed a number of advantages that the Americans did not. For one, the Soviet Union had, within its borders, a sizable Korean-speaking population that could serve as interlocutors between the Soviet occupation authorities and the Korean people. Secondly, the Soviets had no political or ideological qualms about co-opting the People's Committees. The Soviet occupation authorities, rather than viewing these committees as being threatening to their rule, instead integrated them into their own administrative apparatus. This is not to say that the Soviets did not run into issues of their own when attempting to establish control over their zone of occupation. For instance, when a protest against Soviet military rule broke out in the town of Sinuju, authorities cracked down harshly, killing 23 student protesters and kicking off a massive wave of immigration from the Soviet zone into the south. The Soviets also had a difficult time selecting an indigenous Korean to lead the future civil administration. They went through a number of candidates before settling on Kim Il-sung, a 33-year-old captain in the Red Army and a former guerrilla leader. Like the Americans with Syngman Rhee, the Soviets saw Kim as their man, but he too had his flaws. Most significantly, he lacked political experience. Nevertheless, the Soviets were determined to forge Kim into an effective leader through their influence. By December 1945, tensions in the American occupation zone were as high as they had ever been. Faced with political and economic turmoil in the South, General Hodge recognized the source of the discontent as being a sense of uncertainty regarding the nation's future. To the occupation authorities, it appeared that the establishment of a united, independent, and democratic Korea was the only way to avert total disaster. The quickest way to achieve this, many believed, was through a trusteeship. However, some in the American camp were not fully convinced that such a plan was viable. As Hodge's political advisor, William Langdon, wrote, quote, after a month's service in liberated Korea, I am unable to fit trusteeship to the actual conditions here, or to be persuaded of its sustainability from moral and practical standpoints, and therefore I believe we should drop it. End quote. In essence, the rapidly deteriorating situation on the ground had convinced Langton of the need to immediately move in the direction of complete independence. This had to be done with or without the cooperation of the Soviets. The Soviets had already established a relatively stable government of their own in the North, and the Americans were not certain that they would support the idea of a joint trusteeship. To their surprise, however, the Soviets agreed to discuss the issue at a conference in Moscow that began on December 16th, with Korea being the third item on the agenda. In the agreement that emerged from this conference, American and Soviet diplomats agreed to facilitate the creation of a provisional government that would be overseen by a joint trusteeship of the Soviet Union, China, the UK, and the US for a period of up to five years. The public reaction in Korea to the proposed Moscow agreement was one of immediate outrage, at least in the South. A general strike was declared and thousands took to the streets to protest. 
Hodge, who had predicted such a reaction, tried to get Korean political leaders to endorse the plan. One such leader was Song Jin-woo, a leading member of the Korean Democratic Party. Song had hesitantly agreed to go along with the plan, but he was assassinated the very next day. Syngman Rhee, publicly breaking with his American benefactors, denounced the Moscow Agreement, declaring that, quote, the self-respect of the nation will not permit the acceptance of this decision or anything short of full independence, end quote. By New Year's Day, 1946, the far right and far left had united in opposition to the trusteeship plan when the leader of the Communist Party in the South, Pak Han Yong, agreed to reach an agreement with the right-wing politician Kim Koo. This united front, remarkable as it was, was not fated to last for very long. Pak was summoned to meet with the party leadership in Pyongyang on the 2nd of January. There, he encountered no mass protests against the Moscow Agreement. The party in Pyongyang, now led by Kim Il-sung, was unanimous in their support for the trusteeship plan, as they claimed that it was their best chance at achieving Korean reunification. Of course, their decision to back Moscow's foreign policy objectives was due in large part to the Soviet influence over the party in general and over Kim Il-sung specifically. On January 1st, 1946, the Soviets approached Cho Men-sik, the famous nationalist activist, and asked him to publicly endorse the trusteeship plan. The Soviets offered him the position of president if he agreed, but Cho refused to comply. Cho was then arrested, after which point he was never heard from publicly again. It is generally believed that Cho was executed during the opening stages of the war in 1950, along with dozens of other political prisoners who were imprisoned by the North at this time. With Cho now out of the picture, there was no longer any viable political opposition to the Communist Party in the North. Kim Il-sung now had an unobstructed path to acquire even greater power. The following month, the Soviets oversaw the creation of a new executive body for Korea. Called the Central People's Committee, this was, in effect, a provisional government for Korea. Kim Il-sung, of course, was appointed the chairman of this committee. After his meeting with the Communist Party leadership in Pyongyang in early January, Pak Hon-yong returned to the South where he began to promote the party line in support of the Moscow Agreement. This led to a split between the Communist and more moderate left, with the latter denouncing the former group as being opposed to Korean independence. The moderate left banded together with the right in their opposition to the trusteeship plan. This schism within the left only served to further empower the right, and now the right finally enjoyed widespread popular support. General Hodge observed the relative state of political unity in the South, and sought to turn this situation to his advantage. He openly stated his opposition to the trusteeship plan. By aligning with the right and moderate left on this issue, Hodge had increased the legitimacy of the American military government in the eyes of most Koreans. Furthermore, he allowed newspapers within the American zone to report, albeit falsely, that it was the Soviets alone who were pressing for the trusteeship, and not the Americans. The Soviets soon caught wind of this and claimed that it was the Americans who had proposed the idea in the first place, and that by allowing it to be reported otherwise, the Americans were intentionally fostering anti-Soviet sentiment in the South. The U.S. State Department, hoping to avoid escalating tensions with the Soviet Union, asked Hodge to clarify that the Soviet's account of events was the more or less correct one, but Hodge refused, stating, quote, The State Department's request in itself is complete evidence that the department has paid little attention to the information painstakingly sent in from the people actually in the ground in Korea as to the psychology of the Korean people, 
or to the repeated urgent recommendations of the department's political advisors here. Just after the quelling of the revolt and riots brought about by the announcement of the trusteeship, our position here is the strongest it has been since our arrival." End quote. Hodge's instinct to go against the State Department in this particular matter was a savvy one. Had he stated his intention to comply with the Moscow Agreement, the result would have likely been further political unrest in the South. Hodge and his advisors no longer believed that the Soviets would be willing to cooperate with the Americans regarding Korea, and that the notion of a joint trusteeship was simply not feasible. What Hodge and his advisors were now proposing was the creation of a separate, independent government in the South. Hodge's hardline stance against the Soviets would soon be vindicated. Over the course of 1946, American-Soviet relations rapidly deteriorated, laying the groundwork for the Cold War. On March 5th, Winston Churchill delivered a speech at Westminster College in the state of Missouri, wherein he claimed that, quote, an iron curtain has descended across the European continent, end quote. Churchill here was referring to the establishment of communist, Soviet-aligned regimes in several Eastern European countries, including Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Romania, a development that greatly concerned the former Allied powers. A week later, Stalin fired back, equating Churchill to Adolf Hitler and defending his geopolitical actions in Eastern Europe. The formation of a Soviet-aligned bloc in Eastern Europe led many American observers, Hodge included, to fear that the Soviets would seek to expand their sphere of influence wherever they could, including over Korea if given the opportunity. Hodge's fears were essentially proven correct at the first meeting of the U.S.-USSR Joint Commission for Korea on March 20th. At this meeting, commander of the Soviet forces in Korea, Terenty Shtikov, delivered a speech in which he claimed that, quote, reactionary and undemocratic elements are threatening to undermine the creation of a democratic Korean state, end quote. He called for a decisive battle against these elements. This statement was based on the claim that the right-wing Korean political groups harbored pro-Japanese sentiments, and that if they were to seize power in Korea, they would be, quote, instrumental in organizing hostile actions on the part of the Korean people against the Soviet Union, end quote. Therefore, for reasons of national security, these reactionary pro-Japanese elements must be excluded from the government of an independent Korean state. Shtikov's criteria for who constituted these groups was their opposition to the Moscow Agreement, which essentially disqualified moderates and rightists in the South. May 20th was the first, and as far as I can tell, only convening of the U.S.-USSR Joint Commission for Korea. The possibility of a joint trusteeship was essentially dead. In July 1946, Pak Han-yong returned to the South once again with instructions in hand from General Shtikov to consolidate the remnants of the left opposition into one political party, the South Korean Workers' Party. Pak began to adopt more confrontational tactics against the U.S. military government. In September, the communists instigated a strike of railroad workers in the southern city of Busan. The strike soon turned into a nationwide general strike, in which about 250,000 workers participated. By October 1st, things had turned violent. That day, police fired into a crowd of striking railroad workers in Daegu, killing one and wounding several others. This prompted workers from other major industries to join the protests, as well as students. A massive crowd converged on the city's police station, forcing the police chief to surrender. The violence continued the following day. As one eyewitness would later recall, quote, It was open season on the police and all others who held jobs with the American military government. Mobs killed them on the streets, stormed police stations and public offices, and rooted them out of their homes to be slaughtered. 
end quote. Martial law was declared that day. In addition to local police, the U.S. military government also mobilized strikebreakers and right-wing youth organizations, as well as their own troops. The crackdown that unfolded in the following weeks was relentless, with those who had been victimized by the protesters exacting personal revenge on those who had wronged them. Nearly 3,000 protesters or suspected protesters were arrested, and some 240 were killed, compared to the 370 policemen, civil officials, and others who had been killed in the violence. This incident is generally known as the Autumn Rebellion. American occupation authorities naturally suspected the Soviets of being behind the initial strikes, and they were not entirely incorrect in assuming this. While Pak Hanyang and the Communist Party had instigated the strikes, as the strikes spread throughout the country, the Soviets provided additional funding and guidance to the protesters. The Autumn Rebellion proved to be a tactical and strategic defeat for the Korean left. Firstly, it had demonstrated that the far left lacked the strength to achieve a successful revolution in the South. The left lost popular support, which resulted in the rise of more extreme right-wing factions who were even less willing to accommodate them. Furthermore, the Autumn Rebellion further exacerbated tensions between North and South, and served to convince those on both sides that reconciliation and a peaceful reunification were now impossible. The idea of a separate, anti-communist government in the South, which had heretofore been only considered by Americans like Hodge, had begun to take root amongst Korean politicians in the South. In particular, Syngman Rhee's anti-communist stance had hardened. In January of 1947, Rhee wrote in a letter to a friend, quote, If anyone suggests that Dr. Rhee should unite with the Reds, tell him that Dr. Rhee would never cooperate with smallpox, end quote. From the North, the Soviets looked at the events of October 1946 with growing anticipation. They interpreted the Autumn Rebellion as being a harbinger of even more social and political unrest in the South, and anticipated that the Americans would, faced with increasing resistance from the native population, eventually cut their losses and pull out. Indeed, around this time, American leaders had begun to reach the conclusion that maintaining a presence in Korea made little sense from either an economic or military perspective. However, in the emerging context of the Cold War, a U.S. military presence in Korea was deemed absolutely necessary from an ideological standpoint. The Truman administration was utterly convinced of this. Korea was one of the very few theaters where the Americans had the opportunity to confront the Soviets more or less directly. As one U.S. diplomat put it in 1946, quote, It is here that a test will be made of whether a democratic system can be adopted to meet the challenges of defeated feudalism, or whether some other system, that is, communism, will be stronger. End quote. The following year, another State Department official wrote, quote, I fear that our abandonment of Korea will be interpreted throughout the world as an indication that the United States has not decided to maintain its strong position in the Far East. The result upon Soviet policy towards the United States, both in the Far East and in Europe, would be unfortunate. End quote. In other words, the international prestige of the United States demanded that they find some sort of solution to the increasingly vexing problem posed by Korea. On paper, at least, the Americans were obligated to abide by the terms of the Moscow Agreement, but as many could tell, staying this course could only result in a disaster for them. Many saw the establishment of a separate South Korean government as a potential solution, but with this came its own set of downsides. An independent South Korea would still require substantial economic and military assistance from the United States if it were to avoid falling prey to Soviet ambitions. 
These costs, of course, had to be weighted against the risks that the alternative, a full U.S. withdrawal, would pose to America's long-term interests. In September 1947, General Shtikov proposed ordering the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Korea if the Americans agreed to do the same. This essentially offered the Americans a way to wash their hands of the Korean problem without a huge loss of prestige. The Americans spent some three weeks considering this proposal. A mutual withdrawal would allow the Americans to save face by claiming that they were merely regarding the Koreans' wish for independence. On the other hand, they would essentially be abandoning the country to a civil war, a war in which the communists would have the upper hand. The Americans issued their response to the proposed withdrawal on October 17th, quote, In view of the continued inability of the Soviet and United States delegations and the Joint Commission to agree on how to proceed with their work, and the refusal of the Soviet government to participate with the other governments adhering to the Moscow Agreement on Korea, the United States government considers itself obligated to seek the assistance of the United Nations in order that, as the Secretary of State said on September 17th, the inability of the two powers to reach an agreement should not further delay the establishment of an independent and united Korea." End quote. By appealing to the authority of the United Nations, the Americans hoped that the Soviets would feel compelled to abide by whatever course of action the UN decided upon. This was not what happened. When a resolution was passed in the UN General Assembly calling for elections to be held in Korea the following year, the Soviet delegation lodged an official protest. They argued that the resolution was in violation of Articles 32 and 107 of the UN Charter. Article 107 prevented the UN from settling issues directly related to the Second World War, while Article 32 mandated that both sides in a conflict be consulted on an issue. Neither nascent Korean state was a member of the UN at this time, and therefore neither could be consulted. The organization formed as a result of this resolution, the United Nations Temporary Commission on Korea, was denied permission to facilitate elections in the North, but were allowed to do so in the South. Such an outcome was acceptable to the Americans, who saw this as an opportunity to legitimize the creation of an independent South Korean government based on democratic elections. In response to the UN-mandated elections, Kim Il-sung held a conference in Pyongyang to which southern political leaders were invited. Syngman Rhee refused to attend, believing that this was merely a ruse to further delay the planned elections. His fellow right-winger Kim Koo, on the other hand, opted to go. At this conference, Kim Il-sung claimed that the upcoming elections in the South were merely another attempt by the world's great powers to decide the fate of Korea for themselves. He reiterated the offer previously put forward by the Soviets, namely the mutual withdrawal of foreign troops from the peninsula. Furthermore, he stated on no uncertain terms that, quote, separate elections in South Korea, if held, cannot in any way express the political will of our nation and will therefore be regarded as fraudulent, end quote. The Southern politicians returned to Seoul empty-handed. In particular, Kim Koo, who had up to this point been seen as a staunch anti-communist figure, had risked his political career by opting to engage in diplomacy with the North. From then on, he was never able to ward off the public perception that he was some sort of secret communist sympathizer. On June 26, 1949, Kim was assassinated at his home in Seoul. The culprit was Army Lieutenant An Doo-hee, who confessed that he had assassinated Kim because he believed him to be a Soviet agent. An was arrested and sentenced to life in prison, but later pardoned. This has led to speculation that Ahn may have been working on behalf of the American military government. Over 50 years later, Ahn was bludgeoned to death by Park Si-gyo, 
a bus driver who had formerly been an admirer of Kim Koo. Anyway, back to the narrative. One of the more enduring consequences of the Autumn Rebellion was to convince the military government of the need for an indigenous South Korean security force. Hodge proposed raising an army of 45,000, a navy and coast guard of 5,000, and a police force of 25,000. The underlying rationale behind the creation of an entirely new internal security force, as opposed to merely expanding the pre-existing police apparatus, was that unlike the Korean police force that was currently in place, this new police force would not be tainted by their previous association with the old colonial regime. American Secretary of State George Marshall was amenable to the idea, but worried that the Soviets would view the creation of a South Korean army as a provocation. Therefore, he suggested that the new force be instead called the Korean Constabulary. A new organization responsible for the creation of the Constabulary, the Korean Military Advisory Group, was formed. This was to be a purely volunteer force, and men were to be accepted into its ranks based on merit. However, the need to build up such a large force so quickly meant that recruiters often had to relax their standards. As the head of the military advisory group, Captain James Hausman later admitted, quote, We actually created a safe haven for many communists, and we suffered the ill effects of this many times in the months and years to come, end quote. The first real test of the newly established Korean constabulary would come in April 1948, with the beginning of perhaps one of the most controversial episodes in South Korean history, the Jeju Uprising. Jeju-do is an island off the southern coast of Korea with a land area of approximately 700 square miles. In the wake of the Japanese defeat, the situation on Jeju was rather peaceful compared to that on the mainland. U.S. military presence on the island was relatively minimal, and as a result, the People's Committee on Jeju Island was not really affected by the events of the Autumn Rebellion. In early 1948, Pak Hon-yong's South Korean Workers' Party established influence over the Jeju People's Committee and instructed the committee to take actions to disrupt the elections that were scheduled for May 10th. Pak issued instructions that these activities were to remain peaceful in nature, but violence soon broke out regardless. The beginning of the uprising is dated to April 3, 1948. It is unclear which side initiated hostilities, but whatever the case, on that day, some 500 guerrilla fighters loyal to the WPSK, Workers' Party of South Korea, along with some 3,000 sympathizers, attacked police stations across the island, resulting in the deaths of 30 police officers. It soon became apparent to the authorities of the American military government that the outbreak of violence on Jeju Island was not a spontaneous occurrence. Rather, it had been pre-planned for quite some time. The WPSK had sent over 6,000 agitators and organizers to the island in the past months, and had established cells in most of the island's major settlements. Once the uprising began, they were joined by between 60 and 70,000 members of the local population, most of whom were poor farmers whose livelihoods had been interrupted by post-war economic hardships. Thousands of police and constabulary troops were brought in from the mainland with orders to suppress the rebellion by election day. As it would turn out, it would take much more than just a month to restore order to the island. As election day approached, violence only ramped up in intensity. As one American observer would later recall, quote, Stories were told of raided villages where they were found the bodies of hanged women and those of children ran through with spears. Tales of villages utterly wiped out kept coming in. A number of rightists and policemen were also kidnapped, and they were hanged or beheaded. End quote. The rampant violence effectively suppressed voter turnout on Jeju. 
The island reported a turnout of only 20% compared to the 90% turnout elsewhere in the South. The 1948 election was a landslide victory for Syngman Rhee, with Rhee winning over 92% of the popular vote. A constitution was subsequently adopted, and the Republic of Korea was formally declared on August 15th. At the founding ceremony of the Republic, Rhee, as the first president, clearly stated his intention to reunify the Korean peninsula. In a thinly veiled reference to the ongoing violence on Jeju, President Rhee urged, quote, Vigilance against the forces of alien philosophies of disruption, which must be forcibly put down. Rhee would seek no compromise with the Jeju rebels. The Republic of Korea Army, as the constabulary was officially renamed following the establishment of the Republic of Korea, were absolutely ruthless in suppressing the rebellion. In their hunt for suspected rebel agitators, innocent civilians were made victims of kidnapping, assault, rape, and murder with entire villages often being massacred. Captain Hausman would later recall an anecdote from the days of the uprising. Quote, there was the occasion when ROK army personnel speared to death about 20 civilians, alleged communists, without trial. Unfortunately, a picture was taken of the victims and given to Ambassador Muccio, the first American ambassador to the ROK. I might add that a Korean military advisor group sergeant had witnessed this act, and was clearly recognizable in said photograph. When confronted with this picture, I told the ambassador that this was a good sign, because in the past, similar groups of 200 or more had been summarily executed in a similar manner, and now the number was down to 20. This was progress. I will not repeat the ambassador's reply to me, because I wouldn't want to give you the impression that he was short-tempered or uncouth." End quote. On October 19th, the Korean government ordered the deployment of the 14th Regiment of the ROK Army to Jeju. Hausman had long harbored doubts about this particular unit's reliability due to rumors of leftist infiltration. Surely enough, before the regiment had even left their base at Yeosu, they mutinied, killing their officers and seizing the nearby port city of Suncheon. The Jeju uprising had spread to the mainland. Captain Hausman was able to hastily organize a few ROK units to attack the rebels at Suncheon, and by October 23rd they had retaken the city. There they discovered the bodies of nearly 500 people, mostly police officers and civilian supporters of Rhee's government. As a reaction, the ROK soldiers exacted bloody vengeance on their mutinous counterparts. An American reporter present in Sunshine in the days following the recapture of the city described the scene, quote, Before each square stood police, some attired in old Japanese uniforms and wearing swords. One by one, the citizens were called forward to kneel before the police. Each question was punctuated by a blow to the head or back, sometimes with a rifle butt, sometimes with the edge of a sword. There was no outcry, no sound at all, but for the barked questions and the thud of blows. That was what made the scene so terrifying, the utter, unprotesting silence. Many identified as rebels were summarily executed." End quote. Meanwhile, on Jeju itself, the ROK Army's campaign of eradication continued well into the new year. By spring, most of the rebel leadership had been killed. The most infamous among them was a Jeju native named Kim Chi-ho. As Hausman would later recall, quote, When his capture appeared to be imminent, we issued strict instructions to bring his body to Seoul, as it was customary to mutilate bodies and display them publicly. One morning, I found a five-gallon gas tank in my office. On inspection, I found that it contained one very bloated severed head, that of Kim Chi-ho, end quote. Jeju was entirely pacified by mid-May of that year. 
Arriving at an accurate count of those killed during the Jeju Uprising is rather difficult, not in the least because the South Korean government censored any mention of these events until the 1990s. It was not until 2006 that the South Korean government formally apologized for its role in the killings. The figures most commonly cited by historians place the number of dead between 14 and 30,000, with the higher figure representing 10% of the island's total population. That said, estimates occasionally run as high as 60,000. It's even more problematic to attempt to figure out how many were imprisoned during the uprising and in the purges of the army that followed. In the immediate term, however, the successful repression of the Jeju Uprising was seen as a victory for the fledgling Republic of Korea, as they had been able to overcome a very serious threat to their rule, largely without the assistance of the American military. The bulk of American soldiers withdrew from Korea in July 1949, about a year after the establishment of the ROK. They left behind about 500 officers and soldiers who were there to assist the ROK army in advisory capacity. Nevertheless, President Rhee worried about the possibility of an invasion from the North. In 1949, he sent a message to American President Harry Truman, asking him if South Korea could count on American intervention in the event of Northern aggression. Truman could make no such promises. As it would turn out, Rhee was correct to worry about such an eventuality. Ten days after the establishment of the Republic of Korea, elections held in the Soviet zone resulted in a victory for the Communist Party. On September 9th, 1948, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was founded. In the words of historian Sheila Miyoshi Yeager, quote, This uneventful affair proved a study in contrasts. A cohesive, peaceful, and highly disciplined North against the increasingly violent, chaotic, and unstable South. End quote. The establishment of the ROK and DPRK in quick succession paved the way for war on the Korean Peninsula. Here were two indigenous Korean governments, each with ambitions to reunite the country under their leadership, and each with diametrically opposing ideological foundations and international backers who were hostile to one another. With the possibility of peaceful reconciliation now a long-lost dream, the only path forward was violence. When the next episode of the series releases in two weeks, we will see which side makes the first move, as we cover the opening phase of the Korean War itself. If in the meantime you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like to address, please feel free to email me at perspectivesinhistorypod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook. Links to both sites will be found in this episode's description as usual. If you've enjoyed this series so far, consider showing your support by subscribing to the show's Patreon page or by purchasing some books from the show's eBay page. Additionally, you can also show your support by leaving a review for the show on whichever podcast listening platform you prefer. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Perspectives in History podcast. Thank you very much for listening, as always. I'm your host, Will O'Connor, signing off.